Today's reading is Mark 14, 22 to 25, Institution of Lord's Supper. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, church. It's good to be here. Uh, It's always a privilege to get to preach and proclaim God's word. And so, uh, like Dave said, my name's Stephen. I'm a pastoral resident here, so that means uh, I preach every once in a while. But most Sundays, I'm up here leading the music, and it's great to uh, see Dan leading and, and the team there. It's just a, it's just, it's just a good uh, experience seeing that God is building up leaders and uh, God is changing lives. And so, uh, actually, as Dave kind of alluded to earlier, we just got back from Portland uh, earlier this week, which uh, was just a great experience. Uh, just get up into a place where you just remember there are places where it gets cold. Uh, these things like grass and trees um, exist, they're real. Uh, you can ask your neighbor if you don't know what those are. Uh, the, there, there was water, and uh, it, was, it was supposed to be there, uh, which was just great. It was great. Um, I wasn't sweating as I went around, and I think it was just nice of Tucson to greet me a little bit with some of this, uh, some of this Portland weather. And uh, the thing about Portland is you, you don't want to believe, like, oh, all the stereotypes are true. But they are. Uh, I mean, literally. I mean, Portland is not doing themselves any favors, but Portland is not doing themselves any favors to not be that. Uh, we were with Redemption Flagstaff, and literally, we go to our Airbnb, the place we were staying, and it's above a, a marijuana uh, a dispensary. And uh, we prayed for Flagstaff earlier. I think we need to pray for them a little more often, uh, because apparently they're keeping things pretty loose up there in, uh, in Flagstaff, uh, staying a little culturally relevant uh, to, the, to the woods up there. Um, but literally, from the from on top of the marijuana dispensary, which was which was an experience, you could throw a rock to like some pinball bar, and then you could throw a rock to this like coffee shop, and it just it is not the land of milk and honey, but it is the land of craft beer and coffee. Uh, that is kind of that's, that's Portland there, and uh, yeah, it was. It, it, I heard someone say once, and I would definitely affirm this: Portland is where twenty somethings go to retire. Uh, I mean, it's just like I'm I'm there. And like, we're at a conference, so our schedule's a little funky, and it's like 2.30, and we're, at, and we're walking around, and it's like, what are all these people doing, <laughs> like, with their top knots and skinny jeans and man buns? I don't, I don't know. But uh, if you don't know what those are, consider yourself blessed. Um, <laughs> the, the funny thing about Portland, though, and I wasn't expecting this, was it actually gave me a greater love for Tucson. Um, I would have historically said the Pearl District in Portland is my favorite neighborhood in the United States. And it wasn't necessarily anything that was, that was happening there or anything that was going on, but I remember just walking around and thinking, I love my city, and, and I love this church. And uh, being from Northern California, um, that, that, that's, been a, that's been a little bit of a growing uh, thing that God's done in my life. There's been an appreciation for Tucson. But it was just cool to be there and think, wow, God's done something in my life where I am thankful uh, for Tucson and where I really do love where I live. And so um, with that, kind of where we've been as a church, is we've been walking through the gospel according to Mark. And uh, we've been really asking these same two questions week by week. It is, who is Jesus, and how do you respond to him? 
And, and from the beginning of, of the gospel according to Mark, Mark has been clear that Jesus is the author and the hero of the story. That he is the king and he is bringing his kingdom in his way. As we see today and as we've seen through this gospel according to Mark, that the way of the king and the bringing of the kingdom is through the way of the cross. And, and, and we really kind of got to pull back and say, where are we at today? Uh, for those of you who kind of know the calendar, today the text we're looking at is Maundy Thursday, as church history has, has told us. And tomorrow is going to be Good Friday, the day that Jesus will be crucified. So that's, that's really the context for the scene today. And, and today we're going to really see Jesus' final moments with his 12 disciples gathered together. Uh, really the final formal lesson before his death. Um, and it's interesting that this message, this this lesson occurs over a meal. I think some of the most significant moments of our life occur over a meal. But this meal is the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. So before we jump into the text, uh, if you don't have a Bible, we want to get one into your hands. Uh, we just believe that the Word of God, that's why we stood earlier, we believe the Word of God is powerful, it's living and active, and it's authoritative. So if you don't have a Bible, we want to get one in your hand. So could you raise your hand? Um, if you don't own a Bible... Uh, it's, this is our gift to you. Um, also, if you need a Bible in Spanish, just let us know, and we'd love to get one in your hands as well. Um, and if you have a Bible, just leave it on the Connect desk on your way out. Uh, stop stealing our Bibles. Um, Jesus sees everything. Um, no, that's a joke. Um, so as those are getting handed out, let me pray uh, for our time, and then we're going to jump into the text. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that this table that we take communion on has deep meaning, huge historical significance. Lord, I pray that you would give us a newfound appreciation for your work, a newfound just passion for your cross, and realize that you are the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and at great cost to yourself, you made a way for your people to dwell with you. Holy Spirit, as you inspired uh, the gospel authors to write this word, I pray that you would illuminate our minds to understand it, and I pray that you would uh, give me clarity as I preach this word. Praise your name. Amen. Let's just get to it. Mark 14, starting in verse 12. It'll be up on the screen as well. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Passover. Uh, we, we need to spend some time here because we can't understand the Lord's Supper if we don't understand the Passover. And uh, the Passover is, is a monumental feast for the people of God. It is a, a huge cultural identity for Israel. It is a massive moment in the story of God, and we can't miss that. Uh, this feast, what it's meant to do, as, as the disciples would have been doing, they would be eating this feast, and it was meant to point their eyes back, to look back to God's deliverance, look back to God's faithfulness, and look back to God's justice. 
towards his people. And so we look that, that God had originally made a, a covenant with a man named Abraham. And in this covenant, Abraham declared faithfulness to God. And God said, out of you, Abraham, I will make you a, uh, the father of a great nation. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed because of this people. And, and really, God intends that this people, they're going to be a light to the nations. That they're going to they're gonna display, they're going to be a showcase people. To, to show what does life look like? What does human flourishing look like under the rule and reign of God? And if you know the story, it's not exactly how it plays out. And in our context, this people of God, Israel, they find themselves enslaved in Egypt. And, and they're not flourishing, they're in bondage. They're not living free in the promised land, but they're living as strangers and aliens in a foreign land. And Really, for 400 years, the people of God are enslaved under the, the yoke of Egypt. And, and we need to remember that God was still in control. He was still bringing his purposes to pass, um, even in these moments. And, and, and Passover looks back to this deliverance in Egypt that God did. It's meant to point our eyes back to that moment. And it's meant to look back to God raising up a leader named Moses, who was appointed to tell Pharaoh to let my people Go. Some of you read your Bible to see that's good. Um, to let God's people free. And, and many of you know the story. Pharaoh refuses. Uh, his heart is hardened. And, and we get judgment upon Egypt. And it really takes the form of ten plagues. And again, some of you know this story and some of you, some of you don't. And, and in this story, we see these ten plagues. And he turns water into blood. There's frogs. There's darkness. And something that I heard recently from a guy named uh, Mike Goheen is uh, these plagues had deep significance. Um, it wasn't like God uh, just was playing some weird torture game. It wasn't like, you want to play a game, Egypt? Let's, let's send down frogs. Because I, I hate frogs. I'm going to send some frogs down. I, I, why not send crocodiles? And... Get it done that way. I don't know. It just seems very random if you don't know what, what's going on in, in the story. And, and these plagues are nothing less than God picking a fight with the false gods of Egypt. God is calling out, and he's exerting his power over them. See, through the plagues, God, he is smashing. He is crushing. He is dismantling. And he is calling out the Egyptian gods. He's saying, Isis and Shu, you think you're the god of the sky? Then stop this hail. Stop me from infiltrating your realm. Stop me from exerting my power over your kingdom. And of course, these false gods cannot. He says, Oris, you think you're the sun, uh, sun god. You think you created the sun. No, I am Lord over the sun. I created the sun. And I will make it go into utter darkness. He's saying, no, you think that you are a god and you are not. It's kind of like a... Uh, 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 a punk kid who says to his parents, like, get out of my room, it's my room. And the parent's like, this is my house. Like, I brought you into this world, I'll take you out of it. Like, it's kind of that, that level of, like, God is just punking Egypt here. Like, you think you're, you're God and you're not. You think you're the God of the sun, I created the sun. Like, it's that level of things that are going on. And the final plague, all of this really is to show that Pharaoh himself is not God. Because Egypt believed that he, was, that he was a deity embodied on earth. That he was a deity personified there on earth. And, and, and God is going to show that his power is over Pharaoh. That he is in control. And that Pharaoh is subject to him. And really this, this deliverance takes place that God would put to death 
the firstborn of every family, as an act of divine judgment upon Egypt. But this plague, it doesn't just fall upon Egypt. It will fall upon the people of God as well. And, and Tim Keller has a really good quote, I think, that helps us understand what's going on. So let's, let's throw it up here. Tim Keller puts it this way, talking about the Passover. The only way for your family to escape was to put your faith in God's sacrificial provision. Namely, you had to slay a lamb and put the blood on the doors as a sign of your faith in God. In every home that night, there would either be a dead child or a dead lamb. When justice came down, either it fell on your family or you took shelter under the substitute, under the blood of the lamb. If you did accept this shelter, then death passed over you and you were saved. That's why it's called Passover. Don't miss this. You were saved only on the basis of faith in a substitutionary sacrifice. You were saved only on the basis of faith in a substitutionary, uh, on faith in a substitutionary sacrifice. See, the people of God, they had a choice. Trust in Pharaoh or trust in God. Trust in Pharaoh's deliverance or trust in God's deliverance. Trust in Pharaoh's salvation or trust in God's salvation. And death comes. Even in Pharaoh's home, he is defeated at the parting of the Red Sea, and the people of God are delivered. There's an exodus from Jesus. That's why the, uh, the book of the Bible bears the name Exodus. And the people of God, every year, they, they looked back, and they celebrated with the Passover feast. And they, they immediately reenacted this. They remembered this. And they remembered God's faithfulness towards them. And they celebrated the justice of God. And what we see in our text in Mark 14, we see that the disciples are preparing a Passover meal. And, and this is just like the rest of Israel would have been doing. And, and this meal it consisted of bread and wine and, and lamb and bitter herbs. And each of these had deep significance, which I can't get into right now. But Israel was looking not just back to a deliverer named Moses who delivered them from Egypt, but they were also looking forward to their immediate context and said, when will a deliverer deliver us from Rome? Who's going to come here and overthrow this oppressor, this enslaver? And verse 12 tells us that in our context here, in this, in this day, in this Maundy Thursday, that it was the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. While the lambs in the city are being slain in preparation for the Passover, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, prepares for his own death. But not a death to merely overthrow Egypt or Rome. This is something much bigger than that. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But with this context, let's, let's keep moving. So, so verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And, and they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus starts with this, this, this title again of Son of Man. 
we're going we're to go quickly through this section just because we covered a lot of it last week. But this is not the Son of Man title. I even had some people ask me about this recently uh, who, who are here. They're just saying, what does the Son of Man title mean? Because I hear people saying other things and just a, a wide variety of things. And let me be clear. This is the title of Son of Man was one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. And it is not a claim or a pointing to Jesus' humanity. It is actually pointing to a prophetic reference in Daniel chapter 7 about a son, a one like a son of man who with the angels would set the world right. And, and that's the connotation. That's why when Jesus says he's the son of man, the religious leaders freak out. They say things like, this is blasphemy and this can't be. Um, but Jesus is the son of man who will set the world right. And, and Jesus knows that, that what Judas is up to in this. This is something we saw, we saw last week that Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus is not surprised by this. He is in control. Uh, he knows what is going on. And just a couple things that we've said before. Um, one, the cross didn't just happen to Jesus. The cross didn't just happen to Jesus. He didn't just stumble into him, find himself on a cross. I was like, oh no. Like, what do I, I got to kind of do some magic here to kind of redeem this situation. Jesus' mission was centered on the cross. That's why we have a cross up here to point our eyes and to remember that the cross is central to Jesus' mission. It's central to our identity. And, and by his death, he puts death to death, which we'll get to. And, and two, this is what we talked about last week, we need to be warned by Judas. We need to be warned by Judas. See, proximity to Jesus does not equate a love for Jesus. Proximity to God's people does not equal a love for God. Church people can want nothing to do with Jesus. Let us be warned. Because Jesus, or Jesus, Judas, excuse me, did the dance. He played the part. He was around the right circles. He did the right religious activity. He was with Jesus. And he did not love Jesus. And I just think we need to be honest with ourselves. Like sitting in these seats, hearing these messages, singing these songs, does not mean that we love Jesus. Does not mean that we will love Jesus. Dipping the cracker in some juice or wine is not magic. These things will not ensure that we love Jesus. But these things, I say that, and also hear me say with all of that in mind, that these things are good and they are right when they are in response to what Jesus has done. When they're in a response that I am so grateful and I am so thankful and I love you, Jesus, for what you've done, so I will respond. We as the people of God have nothing to prove and nothing to perform. And that's good news. See, in Christ, we are a child of God. We are adopted, we are loved, and we are secure. And, and that is good news. That changes our lives. But think we need to sit in the emotion of this text a little bit and not just move on past it. I mean, let us just try to, like, let's try to enter into this moment, enter into this table, enter into this night. Jesus is saying that one of his 12 closest friends is going to betray him. This is tragic. This is heartbreaking stuff. And I wonder what it was like for the 12 to hear this. We see that they are, they're, they're, they're sorrowful naturally. They're wondering, is it I? They're wondering, which friend of mine is going to betray Jesus? Which one that we thought was in with us, one that we thought was our brother, is in fact not? I mean, how tragic. And 
I wonder what it was like for Jesus to deliver this news. What it was like to look at Judas and say, you will betray me. To look at Peter and say, you will deny me. And look at the twelve and say, you will abandon me in my hour of greatest need. I wonder, did he have, did he have tears in his eyes? And I, I don't know. But I do know this. That some of us in this room right now are walking through deep pain. Some of us, you, you, you feel betrayed. Some of you have betrayed. Some of us walk in this auditorium and you're broken and you feel it. You look around at what's happening in the world and you say, I don't know why what's happening is happening. You look around and say, I don't know why God would allow this. You look around and you say, I don't know what's going on. My encouragement to you is this. Look to Jesus. He knows what it's like. He is our comfort and our peace. And we just need to be reminded, Jesus did not promise us a life without storms, a life without pain, and a life without sorrow, and a life without grief. But what he has promised is that he will be with us in the storm. That he will hold us together when we have nothing left. And he doesn't promise that the storm will go quickly and it will pass quickly. He doesn't even promise that the storm will end in this life. But he promises that he will never abandon us in the midst of it. He is there in it with us. We don't have the strength, but he does. We don't have the perspective, but he does. I just don't want us to miss from this text that our God, our Savior, our Deliverer, our Hero, our Author, He is well-versed with tragedy. He is well-versed with sorrow. He is well-versed with pain. And He is well-versed with loss. So look to Him. Look to Him. It, it's with this weight, it's with this heaviness, it's with the shadow of this cross that we come to this meal. All of this shapes and informs this table and brings us to this meal. So verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they drank all of it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's we'll start from the top, 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. See, the disciples, they're eating this meal with all the background of the Passover, all the background of Egypt and Pharaoh and let my people go. And Jesus diverts from the script. For thousands of years, the people would have been saying the same thing at the same feast with the same elements. It would have, they would have lifted the bread and said something like, this is the bread of our father's affliction um, that they had when they wandered in the wilderness. But Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't look back 
to Egypt. He doesn't look back to Moses. He doesn't look back to the Passover. What he does, he says, this meal is not about Pharaoh. It is about me. See, Jesus says in verse 22, this is my body. Jesus is saying that this is the bread of his affliction. This is the bread of his suffering. And Jesus takes the bread, and what does he do? He breaks it. Showing us something. He says, this is my body, for his body will be broken on the cross. He will be crushed on the cross. And the wine, it takes on new meaning. We learn from other accounts that this is wine in this cup. Verse 23. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. See, in this new meal, the wine, it reflects the blood that Jesus would shed to redeem and ransom and rescue and cleanse his people. The blood that would be shed to bring about a new covenant and a new kingdom. See, verse 24, let's not miss it. It says, this is my blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. Jesus brings a new covenant. He brings a new relationship with God that is built and solidified, that is dependent on his bloodshed alone. We can't miss that. Jesus is turning things on their head. He's saying, this is a new Passover at this table. And it's called the Lord's Supper. There's a new Passover at this table. And it's called the Lord's Supper. And Tim Keller points out something significant, author and pastor in New York. He says, this meal, it wasn't a vegetarian meal. See, see the lamb that was killed, that the, the doorposts were, were painted with his blood on, he was consumed in a very specific way in this meal. He was consumed as part of the feast. And what we see at this new Passover, we see the bread and we see the wine. And I think the original audience would have been asking a question. And I definitely think that the disciples would have been asking a question. And the question is, where is the lamb? There's no lamb on the table because the lamb is at the table. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist. There's no lamb, I believe, on the table, because the lamb is at the table. The original Passover lamb's body, it was broken. Its blood was shed. And it was shed to provide a substitutionary sacrifice that the people of God could rest under by faith. Faith has always been central to how people were made right with God. See, Jesus is saying that he is the greater Passover lamb. That he is the greater Passover lamb to which all the other lambs point to. He is saying that he is the greater Passover lamb who fully absorbs the wrath of God once and for all, finally, completely, and fully. And now we can rest by faith under his sacrifice on the cross. And, and he's saying that this body, it must be broken. That this blood must be shed. So that true justice can come, true rest can come, true forgiveness can come. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Because we don't just need to be saved from Egypt. The disciples, they, they didn't just need to be delivered from this new oppressor, Rome. They need to be saved from sin and all of its expressions. See, we've got to remember that sin entered the world through our first parents, Adam and Eve. And, and after the fall, 
Humanity was infected with the condition of sin. And our nature, it, it was warped and it was distorted. And brokenness became normal. See, we're made in the image of God, yes. Therefore, every human has dignity, value, worth, purpose. We're all made in this image of God. We say this often. But because of sin, we have smeared that image. We have distorted that image. And we've declared rebellion against God. We've declared treason against God. And we've become enemies of God. For we don't want to live under the rule and reign of God. We want to be our own God. We want to declare ourselves as our own authority. We want to be our own kings. It's on our own throne. And we buck against God's lordship and leadership over our lives. We say, you are not the creator. I am. You are not the one who gets to have the authority over all things. I am. In my life, you are not ruling and reigning. And we're declaring blasphemy, saying that we are God. And God cannot allow treason and enemies in his kingdom. And so Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Rightfully so. Eternal death. That, that we're sinners, not just by choice, but by nature as well. We feel it. We can't do the right that we want to do. Because there's something inside us that's inherent to us since that first fall. And we deserve eternal death. Separation from God's love, mercy, beauty, peace, wholeness, and grace. And the good news is that the story doesn't end there. The story does not end with, yes, we are broken and enemies and rebels. The story has a but God right in the middle, which is good news. God intervenes. He gets his hands dirty and enters the story. Jesus gets his hands dirty and enters the story at great cost to himself. He enters the story and he intervenes. And the Passover lamb, he dies. Jesus dies our new Passover lamb, to end our death sentence to sin. Not just Egypt, not just Rome, our nature he is out to restore. Jesus died to put sin and death to death. So for those who are in Christ, they have died to the sentence of death. And Jesus as our new Passover lamb does not just take away our sin. He doesn't just clean us up, put a new shirt on our back and say, there you go, you're good now, be good. He gives us a new nature. He changes us from the inside out. Something that the Lamb and the law could never do. Something that this old Passover could never do. See, Jesus, he's not just the new and the better and the greater Passover Lamb. He's the greater substitute. We have to sink deeper in here. Jesus is the greater substitute. He performed the greater exchange. Let us not miss this. Jesus died in our place for our sins. He takes all of our sin and we get all of his perfection. He takes all of our sin and we get all of his righteousness. We get a new record now. He absorbs fully the wrath of God. And, and get this, his body was broken so that mine wouldn't have to be. His body was broken so yours wouldn't have to be. His blood was shed so yours wouldn't have to be. His blood was shed so mine wouldn't have to be. And that is good news, amen? Jesus is the greater Passover lamb. He is the greater substitute. He is performing the greater exchange. But don't miss this. He is not just the greater lamb. He's not just the greater sacrifice. He is not just the greater exchanger. He is the greater leader. He is the greater Moses. 
as well. N.T. Wright puts it so well. Uh, we'll throw this quote up here. He says, what Jesus knows is that this will be a Passover with a difference. This is the time when he will go as a greater Moses, ahead of the twelve, ahead of Israel, ahead of the world, into the presence of a greater slave master than Pharaoh, into a greater terror than walking through the, through the sea, and lead the world to freedom. Jesus, as the greater Moses, is delivering his people out of the ultimate bondage of sin and death and he is the greater Moses and he's defeating the greater ultimate foe not Pharaoh but Satan and he is the greater Moses leading us and delivering us to a better promised land not in Palestine but in the new heavens and the new earth he is leading us to a greater homeland to a greater promised land where all things will be made new this is good news See, to save his people and to deliver them from the power of sin and death and Satan and chaos and brokenness and bondage, the good shepherd became the sacrificial lamb and he laid down his life for his sheep. Jesus, as the good shepherd, laid down his life and became the sacrificial lamb for the good of his sheep. He says, the wolves will no longer have their way. We worship a good God. We worship a good God who has gone to great lengths, at great cost to himself, to get his people back. Do, do we see what love God has for us? Do we see what security we have? This whole thing is built upon his work on the cross, not ours. So if it didn't start with us, it surely is not sustained by us. It surely isn't finished because of us. So much freedom in this. So much security in this. We have all things in Jesus. Let's go to the last verse. 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus knows his path is the way of the cross. He said this. We've been talking about this for nine months. Jesus knows his way is the way of the cross. He knows that Good Friday is coming. He knows what tomorrow brings as he's sitting there at that table. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows what's coming. He knows that our salvation means his death. Our deliverance means his brokenness. Our peace means his suffering. But Jesus looks to the last day. Jesus looks to that day. See, your hope for the future determines how you view the present. It just does. Your, your hope for the future defines the present. So if you think this whole thing is, this whole world and everything is just going just gonna to be burned up one day and that we're going to go to just a spiritual realm to be with a spiritual God uh, forever, playing on harps and being babies and doing that whole picture that we've talked about, um, why would you engage in anything in the physical? Why would you engage in anything with why seek the good of the city? Why try to be kingdom foretaste in this broken world? There's no reason to. But if you believe that God's going to restore all of this, and some of this has some value, and some of this is a picture of what's to come, then we, get our, we put our gloves on and our boots on and we get to work. Because what you believe about the future and the hope of the future, it defines the present. And Jesus knows this isn't the end. 
Jesus knows that he will die. Jesus knows that he will be buried. And he knows that the grave will not hold him. He knows that this cross, it cannot contain him. He knows that Satan will not defeat him and he will not get the final word. He knows that victory is coming. He knows that an empty tomb is coming. He knows that Sunday is coming and he knows that the resurrection is coming. He knows what is coming. And Jesus says that one day, those who love and belong to him will drink wine and rejoice with our risen king in his new kingdom. And that all will be made right. On that day, it says, we learn in Revelation 21, he will restore his creation. Satan wins nothing. Satan wins nothing. Every tear will be wiped away. Every wrong will be made right. We learn that on that day, we will dwell with our God and we will be his people. And on that day, he will gather us. And on that day, the world will be as it ought to be. That is good news, amen? We just will say, at last. And, and in closing, I, I invite us, church, to come and to respond and to receive this meal and to come to this table in faith, to come to this table in remembrance with all that we've been talking about, in remembrance of the cross, as well as a hopeful expectation. We look back and we look forward at this table. And, and like the scriptures say, that happened at that first Lord's Supper, we don't have lamb at our, at our table. There's no lamb on the table because we have a lamb who is seated on the throne. He is seated on the throne. And that is our hope. This lamb is not prepared for a table. And at this table, let us not forget that we have a great over Passover feast celebration. The Passover would have been a celebration I think we miss that too often with this table. This should be a celebration of deliverance and exodus and peace and security and salvation and rescue. And, and at the old Passover, we get a glimpse, we get a shadow, we get a picture of the Lord's Supper. We see the truer reality at this table. We see the fuller reality at this table in light of this cross. See, we come to the communion table in sober celebration, in glad contemplation, in reverent remembrance, in humble confidence, we come to the communion table in worship. We come to it in adoration and assurance. And we praise the one whose body was broken and whose blood was spilt so that we might live. Amen? Let me pray and let us respond. God, thank you that your blood was spilt so mine wouldn't have to be. That your body was broken so mine wouldn't have to be. And when we call on your name, Jesus, we don't just call on your mercy, we call on your justice. Because Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid my punishment. And God will not punish twice for the same offense. We come to this table, we respond. Lord, I pray that you would be showing us something about who you are and what you have done and what lengths you have gone to get us back to you. We look back just with thankfulness and gratitude 
God, you've gone so far to save us. And we look forward as well with so much hope, knowing that one day every wrong will be made right, and you will bring us into your kingdom, and faith will be made sight. And we'll be no longer in this already, not yet in between. We will be in the fullness, at the finally, at the complete, as it ought to be. So we take this meal in remembrance and in hope for what's to come. Thank you, Jesus. It's so good to us. We respond to you now. In your name, amen.